Hello and welcome back to another episode of How AI Built This. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by none other than Cathcart Associates. Cathcart are an independent technology recruitment company working across Scotland, um, the north of England, Scandinavia and indeed Bangkok. So without them none of this would be possible, so a big shout out to them. On the show today we have Stephanie Boyle. Um, she is the Senior Instructor of Code Clan's Data Analysis course. CodeClan is a programming bootcamp for people who are looking to get into the world of data, basically doing 14 or 16 weeks of, of pretty intense programming and training. So we talked about the idea behind the course, the impact of COVID on it, and loads more stuff in between. So I hope you enjoy. Please welcome Stephanie Boyle to How I Built This. Thanks for coming on the show. First of all, Stephanie. No problem. Nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone that listens to the show, we always start um, on education or early kind of career, whichever uh, is most relevant. So you studied at University of Glasgow, right? Yeah, I did uh, my undergrad there first. I did a BSc in psychology. Um, and I, oh yeah, part of that, I spent overseas in America at Berkeley doing like an exchange year. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, that was great. It's because I had been traveling for a long time. I, I only went to uni because I was like in my 20s thinking I probably should stop working in bars. Um, <laughs> so I came home and did that and then I went away again. And then I came back actually and finished that degree. And I, I didn't really know what to do. That's like the theme of my life is I didn't really know what to do next. So um, <laughs> someone had said, oh, what about doing a PhD? Because you can just do what you're doing for another four years. And so I applied for funding thinking if I get it, I'll do it. And if I don't, I'll figure something else out. So then I just stayed at Glasgow and did a PhD in neuroscience. Um, nice. Actually. So. Was that directly after the bachelor's or did you, have, did you say you had a break in between? No, I had, well, I had four gap years before I went to uni. Oh, nice. <laughs> I sort of did it the opposite way. But yeah, I just went straight from BSc to PhD because the programme I was on was a four-year PhD. It's one of the sort of industry-focused PhDs. So I did it at the university, but I had things like, you had to go and do an internship somewhere and it couldn't be anything to do with research, which was great. So well, you didn't good. need to do a master's before it or anything. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That's um, when we spoke to Adam Shoker on the show, he works in Glasgow. He said that he quite liked the fact that his PhD was very industry focused because it gave you the kind of best of both worlds. Um, yeah, yeah, seeing, Kind of seeing how industry works. Um, so did you... Given that you weren't really sure about doing the PhD, because a lot of people go to uni and like that's their aim is to kind of get into that kind of PhD program and, and continue after it as well. Did you enjoy the process of doing a PhD? Yeah, I did actually. I, I yeah, I was never one of these people. I mean, I didn't even want to go to uni in the first place. I, <laughs> you know, I was hell bent on just working in bars and on beaches for a long time, and I, I think that that's what you do when you're young right like nobody knows what they actually want to do when they leave school I think people think they know what they want to do and you know life just doesn't work that way so I you know I went to uni to study psychology purely because it was on the list to get a visa for Australia and I I was living there and I wanted to go back um and then I kind of liked it and same with the PhD is I never really wanted to do it but I enjoyed doing it and at the time it was fun you know I got to do some cool stuff I got to scan people's brains it was hard work and it was hard at the time going through it um, especially because I was doing my PhD when Brexit happened so actually like in my third year both my supervisors left and went back to Germany and because oh, they were sure. just like well I'm not staying here you know and 
a lot of the academic staff did that quite rightly, understandably. You know, their futures were more certain when if they went home. So, yeah, yeah it was tough. But I think ultimately it was worth it because if you enjoy doing something, it doesn't matter if you change after. You know, that part of my life, I enjoyed it. So it's worth it. So Yeah. I was I was hoping you might say some some of the things you mentioned already because it kind of goes nicely onto what you're doing now, uh, which we will get to. Um, but yeah, I think you're bang on. You don't really know what you want to do when you leave school. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you mentioned working uh, living in Australia. I noticed from your LinkedIn from the thorough research I did before all my podcast that uh, you worked on Daydream Island. Yes. I've, I've been there. Oh really? Yeah, I was. Um, I went to Australia. Uh, I did a gap year, but from work. Uh, <laughs> after so after uni, I worked for a couple of years, and I went to Australia. Um, and we did a do you know like one of those uh, Kantiki like bus trips? Um, yeah. And one of the stops was on Daydream Island um, for I think like three days or or so. Um, I got remarkably burnt on the what's the, what's the beach? The like really white one. It's like a Hamilton Island or something. No. Yeah, uh, I can't. I actually can't remember. We were sort of we lived on the staff bit of the island, which was. Oh, the I bet that was resort. way more fun. <laughs> it was well. It was probably more fun, but it was definitely not five star. Yeah, <laughs> is what I'll say. Um, to be fair, we got the Kontiki rooms, which uh, I don't think were five star either. I think we were chucked ne- like near the not so well paying guests. Um, but no, I know I noticed that. I thought it was a funny coincidence. Um, yeah. Small world. Yeah. So did you think after the PhD that you still might end up going back to Australia, for example, or did once you finished the PhD, did it seem more obvious that you might stay in in Scotland? Yeah, I think I, I, I after my undergrad, I, I thought I wasn't maybe going to go back, going to move away somewhere else because I've lived a lot of places. And yeah, I think after my PhD, I knew I didn't want to stay in academia. Um, that was really clear to me. I, I that was an easy decision. I didn't really know where I wanted to go, but I, you know, I was a. I think I'm actually giving away my age. I was too old to get a visa for Australia after, <laughs> um, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I I said I decided I wanted to stay put for a wee bit because my PhD was the longest I'd ever lived anywhere, um, and I sort of I, I say I wanted to stay there. That was in Glasgow. I'm from Glasgow, but I ended up moving to get a job over to the east coast, so didn't stay exactly put. But yeah. Closer than Australia. <laughs> uh, did you, you did a bit of lecturing at the uni as well. Was that just part of the PhD then, rather than staying in academia? Yeah, I well, I started doing um, like graduate teaching, which mm. is an option because PhDs don't. I mean, you get money, but it's not much. I think it was like twelve grand a year or something was what the salary was, and that was considered a good one. And um, you have to teach at the side or do other stuff to get money. So I had that started teaching thinking I would hate it because I'm not that kind of person um but I actually loved it I, I, I liked it way better than I liked any of my research and I thought it was fundamentally more important than any of the research I was doing you know um I sort of viewed my research as interesting but it was something that interested me not really that it was going to benefit a lot of people um yeah teaching was like yeah that's where I learned to actually like explaining stuff to people. And then it sort of progressed and I started doing summer school and evening classes and lecturing. And then, yeah, that's where I realised, yeah, this is what I want to do. Do you think if you do a PhD and don't do the teaching element that it becomes, like, it's quite an important skill, right? Because when you're in academia at a PhD level, you're speaking to, like, 
very smart people on a day-to-day basis, whether it's your like professor or other people doing a PhD in your kind of like school or whatever. Um, if you don't do the teaching element, like is it is there a risk of people almost like I don't want to say like being too smart. That's not a very mm. clever, not a very clever way of saying it. But like you know what I mean, like they're not having to explain anything like at a, at a kind of different level to people. Yeah, I think there's this assumption that if you teach, it's because you're not that good at research. But it's fundamentally more difficult to explain something to a beginner than it is to explain something to someone that knows what you're talking about. And you see that a lot with like lecturers and all that and it's not me criticizing any particular one it's just they've not done it they've not had the opportunity to go and speak to someone that doesn't know anything about anything and so they explain it at quite a high level and it used to do my head in when I'd sit in talks and people would just flash up like pages of equations I was like you're really doing this to make yourself look smart like this is a talk about how smart you think you are you're not doing this talk to teach anyone anything because you're not explaining it you know so yeah, I think it's it's really important. And but then you've got the flip side is a lot of people have supervisors that think teaching's a waste of time. Like it's time away from your research and therefore it is not worthwhile. Um mm. I had quite a good one because he was like, Yeah, you you know, do what you like. If you want to teach, you should do it. And also it's good to have a backup plan, right? Like academia is not an environment that suits people and it's not a it's not one based on I'll, I'll maybe be controversial and say I don't think academia is based on like merit I think it's based on like connections and who you know and how much funding you can get rather than if you're a good teacher or you do something really good you know it's it's the same as any job it's about who you know and what how you can work the system almost yeah. so yeah I think it's a it's always good to have a backup plan and that's why my PhD was in internship I went to the science centre and Glasgow Science Centre and worked there and they're like world of work I like pilot program and that was really good because that gets you explaining stuff to kids which is so much harder than yeah, explaining stuff next, to adults <laughs> yeah that's the next step from like first year uni like going to kids <laughs> I know and they ask really tough questions I remember my PhD was about like brain like brain waves looking at them and a kid asked me they were like what would happen to your brain if you died really suddenly like if you were hit by a car versus if you died slowly from old age I was like Oh, I don't know how you get ethics to do that experiment, but like, <laughs> it's a good question and it's a really tough question, you know. So when you're faced with stuff like that, it makes you just get into the point you're really comfortable being like, I have no idea, but that's really cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great point. That you've went from you've done you've done the whole gambit of teaching now. Yeah, no, I think you. I mean, I still feel like academia is one of those things that the and and it's I think it's getting better in technology and other industries but academia still feels like from what I remember anyway that it was kind of like a time served industry so like you've been there for you've been at the University of Glasgow for 25 years so like obviously you'll get the next job or whatever it might be as opposed to like are you the absolute best teacher in in that department or whatever I mean we had a few lecturers at Harriet Watt where like you could tell that they just wanted to go their way and do the research and the hour of lecturing was just like, it was just like a time where they were just a bit pissed off. Um, yeah. As opposed to the other ones who like were just all in for the whole hour and any other time you wanted to speak to them, they were just there. Um, yeah. So I think there's still a bit of a mismatch. Yeah, I think definitely. And I, I don't know about other universities. Glasgow, there's like a teaching track and a research track, which is quite good because the people in the teaching one, I mean, they are phenomenal. I taught in the psychology department at Glasgow and the, the people that teach there are phenomenal. Like, 
they redid the whole curriculum. They moved everyone from away from SPSS and started teaching everyone R like years ago because they thought it'd be more beneficial and they had right. endless time, you know, and it just was like, you could tell they love teaching. But then there are some people that don't like teaching and see it as pointless. And I always feel like, well, yeah, research money is good for a uni, but ultimately, and I suppose COVID is showing this a wee bit, if you don't have the students and they don't want to come for the teaching experience, like the uni will struggle because they are the lifeblood of a university, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that as like the, it's a good, it's a good argument now with COVID having no students. Um, although I did see something, and obviously this isn't quite how it's going to work, but I saw that like Oxford or Cambridge or something said they might just do 100% online. Um, yeah. And someone said it's just a really expensive open university now. Because um, yeah. like people pay to go to Oxford and Cambridge and get that level of teaching and now they, they might just do it online. It feels like a bit strange. Um, yeah. But I mean, do, so do, do you think this will have a positive impact on academia in the long term? Um, I, yeah, I don't know because I'm so out of the loop with academia now. Like my friends still work there and some of them are still doing postdocs and some of them have got lectureships and yeah, I actually have no idea what's going to happen with it. I think it would be a real shame if a lot of universities struggled because of funding and everything. Every industry is struggling, but I think education is so important and in Scotland because it's free at least it, it is something of a leveler for people you know and I am a big believer in you don't need to go to uni to have a good career but we live in a world where titles and you know the impression of prestige matters quite a lot so you know I think it's important for people you never know though maybe all these companies will start saying you know in five years okay well if you don't have a degree that's fine because you have work experience because maybe people won't go to uni they'll do work instead right now so yeah oh the whole degree thing to get a job really frustrates me just before we get on to kind of the the working industry um where does you mentioned the psychology department moving from SVSS to R, where does the kind of coding element of psychology come in? This is me just speaking because I have no clue. <laughs> no, that's fine. I actually, I think it's a funny thing to think about, but psychology is now almost what they call data, data science, right? Like for psychology graduates, you have to understand statistics to a really intense level because psychology is all about collecting data on humans and then trying to make some inference about what's happening. So the whole degree was how do you do a good experiment? How do you collect data in a meaningful way? How do you do it in a robust way? Then how do you analyze it? How do you do statistics? How do you build models? And then how do you explain it to someone? That is a psychology degree. It's just focused on humans rather than like engineering or or some sort of process. So it's actually the people coming out of the psychology courses are like prime for data science, which is why I did it, you know. Um, And yeah, the coding comes in and just how do you, run an experiment like how do you set something up on a computer that people can respond to like you know I was coding actual experiments to like flash things and play noises that's not something I thought I would do um and then yeah the stats element is so stats heavy I didn't realize that before I started <laughs> I don't think a lot of psychology people realize because they would complain quite a lot they'd be sitting in these classrooms like I don't want to do this why am I learning art this is really hard I was like yeah no yeah no, I remember <laughs> I remember pretty vividly and I think it was second year or first year because like I did like a business and marketing degree. So I heard it what like the first couple of years are quite general. Like you cover like, like economics, then you do a bit of like um, business law, then you'll do like this, that and the other. There was like a stats element to it with probably the worst teacher I've ever had from P1 up to leaving uni. And it was all SPSS based. And I, 
I, I've never been more confused in my life. So when it came to do my dissertation, they said, do you want to do quantitative or qualitative data? And I was like, I've never been more sure in my life that I'll be doing qualitative. I was like, there's no chance. As I'm not going anywhere near like, <laughs> like, like numerical data for my dissertation. Um, yeah. But, you know, I never thought about that way. So it kind of like psychology is almost just like a different, it's like a different industry to be doing data science in. So like you can do it in like, so some data scientists work in like retail sector, for example. Psychology is just like the people sector essentially. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost like they, they teach quite robust practices, you know, like they'll teach version control because if you're publishing stuff about humans, it needs to be, someone else needs to reproduce it, right? Like, so that's why the coding came in because you can't really reproduce point and click, you know? Um, so it's all about, I mean, other unis do it differently, I guess, but Glasgow's all about like getting stuff online, making all the code open source, making it available so people can see what you're doing because, you know, it's funded money and it's taxpayer money. So if, it should be accessible to anyone that wants it you know so yeah I think by the time those people like I say those people those undergrads that I was teaching they've done four years of programming on their own which is you know a pretty hefty experience for graduates coming out so and is it mostly with data that they are collecting as well so it's not like yeah. they're just they're not just being given a data set like like you're just signing on and there's some data make, make sense of it like you actually have to yeah. get it yeah exactly like I think the first three years at Glasgow you do like um, or the first two years definitely you do labs every week and it's people teaching data science and then you do mini dissertations and like big dissertations it's all designing your own experiments as well like how do you collect the data that's you know all these things that they need to know is all there so it was great experience to teach it and do it so yeah yeah no I bet um, and it sounds like moving from SPSS to R it's just like like you said it's just you need to have someone in the kind of higher ups of the department who've just understood that it's a good way to go because I don't know you, the job that you're doing just now but also kind of just knowing the industry if people are coming out from psychology degrees or I don't know like any other sort of degree with some programming in it if you're coming out with like SPSS or, or MATLAB skills like you are going to have to retrain even if it is going to be it'll be easier for you because you understand the kind of principles but mm-hmm. you, are, you are going to have to retrain it and not use those skills in the real world which doesn't make sense when uni is supposed to kind of set you up I think yeah yeah exactly they're really prepped for the real world and yeah it took a lot of i think it was a, an uphill struggle for the people on that teaching track to do that but they've done it and it was, it's just paid off so yeah that's good and then you, you moved into industry i think is this right so you worked with quotient sciences yes uh yeah after my phd i was just applying for any job i, I could get um and it was one of those things that makes you realize wait i think when you're in the academic bubble you have this idea that like I never thought I was the best of anything or anything like that. But I did have a, a sort of idea, that, oh, I've got a PhD, that kind of means something, which it does. But also I was just applying to jobs and they're like, you have no industry experience, don't be daft. You know, like <laughs> you've just been like in your pyjamas writing for four years, which is not untrue, but also like I don't, <laughs> I don't think PhDs like get the credit. A lot of them are more business savvy than they get credit for. Um, so yeah, I was just applying to jobs, and it was one that came up, and it sounded nice. And then yeah, I just started that. I was a what do they call me? A, a statistical programmer. Yeah, I've got a little <laughs> note on. Uh, I've got a little note here saying, uh, "Is this a much better title for a data scientist?" I have no idea. I think having I've, done I all the careers, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think data scientist is just a statistician, like the buzzword of now, right? Like it'll probably be like AI scientist next year. Um, but yeah, I think. I don't know why they called it that. There's also like clinical programmers and I don't know if it's a pharmaceuticals term or whatever, but well, it's also weird because I didn't really do any stats at that job at all. I 
did a lot of programming and then passed it to a statistician who's like got a degree and is qualified to do some stats. So <laughs> what kind of stuff were you looking at? So for that job, what I was doing was, it was great because it was so strictly controlled, but I would get all the data from the clinical trials from the clinics and I would put them into like database forms and tables that you could analyze. And then I would do all the, they called them tables, listings and figures, I think. It's just, yeah, everything for a report that you're submitting to the FDA, I would just program it. Um, but the statisticians, it was great. I, I liked Pharma for how controlled it was. You know, they would give you a big book that they'd written, like a report, and it had, before you even started the trial, all the tables you were going to do, all the figures, all the listings, everything, so you could just program away and then hand it back. So, Nice. Yeah. Was, that using, was that using R as well? No, <laughs> that was using SAS. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's why the site. No, I mean, like, you could use SQL through SAS. I did that a lot. Um, I think Pharma just uses SAS because, well, I asked this. I said, why do you use SAS? It's so expensive. And it's not a nice programming language to write. Um, but, like, by that point, I had I, my PhD was in MATLAB, but I'd been teaching in R, and I'd done a bit of Python as well from, like, stuff for my PhD I needed to do. So then this was, like, my fourth one. So it wasn't hard to learn, but I was so annoyed by that point by always typing, like, proc this proc that like you know i saw a funny thing on twitter it was like when you stop using sas what you use like proc, proc please never again you know um which is true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i was using sas but it was fine I, yeah i think farmer uses it they said because if someone dies or if the software goes down like they need someone to blame you know which is true um if r stopped working tomorrow if a package just went offline because someone did it for free in their free time like there's not much you can do about that right like that person yeah. did it out of goodwill. But if you're paying a company to maintain software, then you can, you know, set a lawyer on them and say, why have you stopped maintaining it? You know? So. Yeah, I feel like even when we're working with clients now, like when they say like their legacy techs maybe in like, I don't know, like WPF, like desktop Microsoft stuff, and you're like, oh, have you thought about like going open source or like trying to modernize it or whatever? And that's kind of quite often their reservation is just like, well, our customers still use this. So like there's a financial software company um, who have like all the hedge funds in America use their like desktop software and they need it to work. So like moving it to something open source or something that's maybe like what like they might describe as cutting edge, like it's not being used by other companies of a similar size to them, then it's just they're too worried about it. Whereas, like, yeah, yeah if, it, if it's a Microsoft product and it doesn't work and something goes wrong, you phone Microsoft and tell them to fix it. Yeah. Um, or you sue Microsoft and they'll pay you lots of money. Whereas, like yeah. you said, like, I mean, is that, is that a problem with open source that's maybe one that you just can't get around? Like, there's no, there's no real fix for that, is there? Yeah, I, like, I don't know because I'm one of these people that's open source, you know, I'm socialist to my core. I think, you know, everything should be for everyone. But, um yeah, I think it's a problem because I do see their issue. Like, if, if something breaks for a day, that company will lose millions. You know, if, if something breaks for a day when we're teaching at CoCon, I'm just like, oh, well, we'll do it tomorrow. You know, but if, if you know, if you lose millions and, yeah, I, I mean, I ultimately left Pharma for, like, various reasons, but I can see why, apart from the fact they want loads of profits, like, they are supporting people's jobs and livelihoods. You know, if they start losing billions, that's a lot of people – they would be out of a job. So I see the point and I, I don't know how open source would get around it. I know ours got people that work there and maintain it, but I, yeah, I just don't know. I, I think that even for that one, you have to pay, right? Like our studio server is the one yeah. that gets the help. So, I mean, it makes sense. You have to pay people for their time and their service and their expertise. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, I don't like, like <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard that before. And that is, 
it's one of those things you hear like companies that hire all these data scientists and they'll hire like really switched on PhD um, or like experienced data scientists or whatever and then they kind of plunk them into a team doing some like SaaS or like some fairly, I don't know, kind of fairly mundane work, but they've badged up as a data scientist. So that's kind of where the problem of the, the title comes in again. Um, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I, I think the titles are meaningless now, right? Like that's yeah, why I always tell the students in careers week, I'm like, don't look at the titles, look at the skills because I see data scientist titles and it's like must be able to use Excel. I mean, that's fine, but that's not a data scientist in its true form. Like, that's a data analyst, and loads of really talented people would be put off applying for that because of the title, when actually yeah. they'd be more than capable of doing it. You know? Yeah, my big issue with the job titles, and I'm not one for, like, convoluted, complex job titles. Like, I think if you're a software engineer, then call yourself a software engineer. Like, stop all this nonsense. But yeah. I think data science is almost going the other way, where it's trying to capture way too many things, and then data analyst has a kind of negative connotation of just like inputting thousands of rows into Excel or something like that. So, and I don't have an answer for it, unfortunately. But I yeah. feel like there there could be a there could be a rationale to have like slightly more specified data science titles. So like if you are purely working on NLP or computer vision, like that already happens, but yeah. it doesn't seem to happen for other things. So it's trying to work out the best way, didn't it? Especially when you're teaching as well. So it must be quite hard to like try and point people in the right direction when there is just so many different like variations of data jobs yeah i just point but i just say don't look at the title because it doesn't mean anything like i call myself a data analyst i would i have a phd and i've done like machine learning i've done all that but data scientist to me just doesn't mean anything anymore i think like i know it does but to me it just doesn't yeah i mean honestly most of the stuff i do is data cleaning that's what data scientists do you know, yeah. you clean data. And then it sort of looked down on it as like, oh, that's, you know, not the fancy part. I was like, well, yeah, cool. I can run an algorithm on some really rubbish data, but it's not going to tell me anything meaningfully. It's much harder to take a data set and look at it and find all the problems with it before you start than it is like just to bash out a bunch of algorithms, you know. So I got myself see, a data analyst. <laughs> yeah, but you also see all the issues with like data that's not been prepared properly. And what comes out at the end of it is just like, total crap but they've they've paid a data scientist like x amount of thousands a year so they're just going to use it anyway like you need you kind of need to have that conviction at the start to like say like it needs to be good quality data before we even pretend we're going to stick it into an algorithm or any sort of like fancy model yeah exactly like it's it's funny timing actually because our students that are on the cohort right now they're on their project week we do four projects but they're on their dirty data project and that's not like that's a safe for work term because that's what it's called you know (laughs) and they spend a week (laughs) they spend a week doing data cleaning because we just keep saying we've all worked the people that teach at Coca have all worked in industry and it's like you can have the fanciest job title in the world but I guarantee you you'll spend most of your time cleaning data that is the skill that you need to do and so they spend a week and we've got this amazing, well, I say it's amazing because I've never actually attempted the project, <laughs> but it's a Halloween candy data set, like from America somewhere. I think we got it off Kaggle and they left everything as free text. So everything is oh. just, I know, I think there's like, which country do you live in? It's America. There's like 80 different ways people have put USA in, like with emojis or like freedom or, you know, and they have to fix it. And they, do, you know, they all there's hate us at the end of the week. <laughs> there's probably a few that type don't know where they said what country you come from. Yeah. And stuff like, <laughs> you know, spelling mistakes and all this stuff that's really difficult and annoying to deal with. But ultimately, you'll be valuable if you can do it, you know. Yeah. 
that was um, so Eric that runs the MyKML event with me. He's a head of data science down in London, and his previous role to what he does now was um, like mass surveys. So mm-hmm. they had like there was an app on people's phones, and it was like, do you know when like I don't know, like a new KitKat comes out, like they want to know the market perception. So like they ping all the apps saying, hey, like hey Stephanie, Liam, James, can you go and grab this new KitKat and tell us what you think about it and put it in the app. Um, and he showed, again, some of the talks he's done, he shows you some of like the variations of the free text they would get back. Because some of it was like, yes, no, so that's easy. Um, some of it was pictures, so again, that's quite easy. But some of the answers to like, how did it make you feel or did you enjoy it or like just anything with free text, like some of the stuff they had to work out how to do from like an NLP perspective was just like terrifying. And like they, they had to build something really like sophisticated to make the whole point of the research like worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I hate free text. Every time I work on a project, like when I was doing any sort of freelance stuff or when I'm trying to help the students and it's free text, I'm just like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> Deep breath. Yeah. Um, so we've spoken a little bit about co-clan and kind of about what you're doing already, but just to, to you moved on from pharma um, and uh, you're now the senior data analyst instructor and data team lead at co-clan. So... Yeah. For anyone that doesn't know what CoClan is, first of all, what do you and the team do? Yeah, so CoClan is well, it's a digital skills academy. I get, I feel like I'm just trashing everything I like work with, but digital skills to me is so vague, you know. But what it is is it's programming boot camps. That's what CoClan does. Um, they have a software one. And I say that knowing not very much about software, so I don't want to get it wrong and, and all my other instructor friends hate me, but there's a professional software development course and a full stack web development course. I've still to figure out what a stack is, uh, but they are different. Yeah, I was <laughs> um, going to ask you what's different, but let's, let's not even go there. No, I think like one of them has an extra module. I think one of them you do JavaScript and one of them you don't. I think that's what they explained it to me. Um, I think the one, the full stack is the Inverness one called Clans Highlands. Um, and we don't run that down here. And then we started a data analysis course last year. Yes. So we've got these three boot camps and it teaches people how to either do software dev, dev or data analysis. Um, and those are for career changers. So they're really intense. <laughs> they're 50 hours a week. Um, it's, it is hard. Um, but the idea is you learn so much over a course of 14 or 16 weeks. Um, and then we started doing short courses as well which is really fun. So little, oh, we're calling them data picking mix <laughs> for our one because we've got like R for data analysis, Python and SQL, all the short courses. So businesses can sign up or individuals. Um, so yeah, it's all about teaching programming, teaching skills. Why did you decide to kind of go back into that teaching world? Did you just miss it from being in industry for a year and, or a couple of years and then the opportunity of Coquan because, I mean, you're... Yeah, they said it's only a year old, so like it's not like it's been there for ages. Yeah, so CodeClan's been there coming up five years, but the data analysis one, yeah, that's only that's very new. I think so. Why I decided to leave, I went into industry, um, despite how much trouble I had getting in, and I think this is probably the same for a lot of PhDs that leave. You get in at a ground level, but you move up so quickly just because you tick boxes. And when you're in the industry, it's not the same as academia. It's not the same as like waiting out your time. You know, if you're good, they'll promote you. If you tick yeah. boxes, they'll promote you. That's how businesses work, you know. Um, so I'd moved up pretty quickly. And I was at the point where I was doing a lot of paperwork rather than programming. Because the more senior you get, the more responsibility you have for like 
checking the start of a clinical trial is is right versus like programming because that can be fixed easy you know um yeah. and I was getting a bit bored and I had it sounds bad I had a lot of free time because <laughs> in industry you have good work-life balance you know I, I worked 7 a.m till 3 because that's what I decided to work not because I like getting up early but I hate working in the afternoon <laughs> um so I had all this free time and I started freelancing just on the side to try and again this sounds bad but I thought just doing SAS for two years I was de-skilling myself I was forgetting all my R I was forgetting all my Python so I started freelancing to try and upskill yeah. and I wanted a new bike so I wanted more money <laughs> so <laughs> I did that and actually it was CodeClan I saw and I think it was on Twitter that they were launching this data analysis course and they were looking for writers and I had done loads of writing at Glasgow so I just emailed and then I met with Joe Watts who was one of the people that was like core involved in getting it off the ground uh, and I freelanced I think for a few months writing it and then eventually they were like would you like to teach it as well and uh, yeah I'd missed teaching I was ready for something you know more challenging than what I was doing because my job in industry was great but ultimately like it didn't have interfere with my life in any way which was nice but I was starting to get a bit like oh I'm not doing anything so yeah I decided yeah. to go to code Clan and that was just like you know back to teaching back to the chaos so it was great I loved it you know um so yeah I think I came in halfway through the first cohort as like a freelancer and then I started full-time at the end of that cohort so one of the reasons I really like the, the kind of programming boot camps like you said is that like it is people moving from something else so like if I decided to go to the data analysis course of Cocline like it's it's quite expensive it's 50 hours a week like you said like you're not messing about so like I feel like at the end of it you're if you get through it all you're almost guaranteed to have like a, a high quality person who's going to go into to industry but on the flip side of that one of the things we sometimes find especially in the job that I do is people say like well you can't be a good software engineer or a good data scientist with 14 weeks of training when you used to be a pilot like mm-hmm. how what, what do you think like you, you know the course you know the teaching Mm-hmm. you know the kind of dedication it takes so like is it just one of those things where you do end up just producing really really good people yeah i think it's funny you say that we've got a pilot on the course now um like on the course right now <laughs> i just uh, like to think of an obscure job <laughs> title yeah i know um yeah i mean i think yeah it's hard so the people that i will say the people that do the software course and the people that do the data course do appear from like very superficial it only been a year to have slightly different demographics so I'm talking very specifically to the data analysis course right now and I feel like the people we've seen are not these people that are doing like this huge right angled turn in a career it's people who realize they need to update the stuff that they're they already do you know we've had like project managers that have come because their team are programmers and data analysts and they say I don't know how to even estimate how long this will take them I'm trying to manage these people and I don't fundamentally understand if what I'm asking is unreasonable. Like, can you do this in two weeks or should I be giving them two months? You know, that kind of thing. So I think it's hard. But for me, the, co- the thing with CodeClan, like it's, I think, yeah, it's expensive. It's like six grand something. Um, for 50 hours a week, though, it works out about eight pounds an hour, which is probably equivalent to uni. You know, I taught at a uni and I've taught at CodeClan and... Yeah, the, the face-to-face hours at CodeClan are more than you'd get in a master's. For the oh, same way more than <laughs> Yeah, so there's that idea. And I always think that the, the, 
it doesn't suit everyone. A bootcamp doesn't suit everyone. You know, the data lab do a really good MSc program for data science, and that would suit people if you have a year to do it. A lot of people don't, so they just, you know, tend to do this. Or they've tried online courses and it's dragged on because you're working all day and then you come home and you're too tired, you know. So I always feel, what's the word? I don't want to say in awe. I'm a bit, like, overwhelmingly impressed by the people that come to CodeClan because they've made this decision, they've spent all this money, and I think the people that come are at that point in life where they want to change something. And I think everyone's been there, like not even just work, like you could be like in a place or a job or a career or relationship or anything where you're fine. You're fine. You're not unhappy, but you know that there's something else that you want to do. And I think that feeling sometimes that you want to change your life can be kind of suffocating. And you either have to take the leap and go, you know, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, great, fine. I'll still be happy I took the chance. And the people that come to CodeClan are those people that have said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the chance. And that's a huge, like, thing to do. And it's a level of dedication that you don't see if you've just gone to uni and you've decided, oh, I'm just doing it because I'm doing it, you know. So they've got that going for them. I think that's an underrated, what's the word? It's not a skill, but a, char- a characteristic of you that you're willing to work really, really hard for something you want. You know, yeah, right? I just think like when you apply for a job and like say it's a graduate data science job um, or like an entry level data scientist job or whatever, like if you're going up against someone who has been a pilot or a nurse or something and has pivoted and paid their own money to go to CoClan and like really hammer out like a tough, intensive course versus probably the only drawback I can think of a free uni in Scotland is someone that just finished school and decided to jump into some sort of degree that happened to have some data in it and then they maybe want to apply for some data jobs like yeah. the, the difference in the, the two people from a skill point of view might not be hugely different but the kind of desire attitude like willingness to learn like you could almost argue it's night and day yeah exactly and I think there's this idea that we always tell them at Code Hunt, it's like please don't discount your life's experience you know like you will have some of them have had 20 years working in industry as something and yes they'll be up against a graduate who's spent four years coding on and off for projects and yes they've spent 14 weeks coding but the bootcamp gives them four projects to put on github that they can they can show so actually that's more than a lot of uni people come out with um, yeah. and also you know these people I I don't want to sound patronising at all but when I went into industry I had to learn things like how to write a professional email to a client like how to behave in a board meeting like how to do all these things and these people that are coming to CoCon have that experience so it's not only that they can code and they can think about data but they can say yeah I've managed teams yeah I've done this yeah I've got 10 years in finance doing this you know so I think that combination of you've got all this experience you've come you've retrained you've changed your life and you've taken the chance, you know, these people do work hard and they are skilled because, geez, oh, the course is so intense. Like, I, I the 14 weeks contains way more than I learned in my PhD, you know. And That's <laughs> I know. And they like, because we go from what is R, that's day one, <laughs> um, all the way to machine learning at the end. So they should have, by the end of them finishing, a machine learning project that they've done on business data in 14 weeks. So they've actually done, well, they should have done two business projects by the end because they do a, group dashboard project in the middle for a code clan so that i mean they're getting a lot of valuable stuff to show you know which is i think the key you know you need to show what you can do not just tell people what you have done yeah i tell that to all even the senior data scientists i've been working with like you need to you don't necessarily have to have like 
open GitHub projects of what you did in industry, but like if you've got some examples you can go into detail of, or if you do have some, even just like Kaggle competitions or like just something that like actually shows your like working essentially. Uh, but yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head as well. Like I spoke to a business analyst last week or the week before, um, who was on like 500 quid a day at the financial, in financial services. She decided to do, it wasn't Kokan, it was down south, it was kind of something similar. Um, and she did like an NLP project and she really wanted to get into data. Um, and I actually said to her, like, you're probably going to be ahead of a lot of people because as a business analyst, you've got to like wear a business hat. Then you've got to be kind of like a bridge between technical. Then you've got to be able to write like business documents, potentially face off the clients as well as your internal teams. And now you've added like NLP programming, like data science skills to your like um, uh, your kind of like arsenal. So even if you are going up against people with slightly more kind of coding experience or like whatever it might be like none of them are going to know how to sit in a client meeting for example yeah exactly and i think it comes down to this idea that what it is fine to like change your mind like i really am one of these people that full-heartedly believes that we need to normalize that it's fine to change your mind like a decision you made two years ago it's fine to not be relevant for where you are in life today i mean like I think COVID has given everyone this idea that, that like, we don't actually have less control of our lives than we did five months ago. We just, the illusion that we had control before has been shared for a lot of people, you know, like, you know, and it's fine. And I think normalizing this idea across industry that it's fine to change career and it's fine to upskill and it's fine to relearn stuff. You know, that's a, that should be praised, not seen as this like, oh, they've done this and then they've done that. You know, these people are making a really scary decision to like put all their eggs in one basket and say, yeah, okay, I'm going to try and change my life for the better. And yeah, I'm always just like, we get to graduations and I always verge on tears because I'm like, I'm so proud of you, <laughs> you know, because it's, like, it's hard. I, you know, I don't know if I would do it. I don't know if I'd be brave enough to, you know, do it, but I, you know. Yeah, it's definitely my least favourite objection from a client is when somebody's jumped around a lot or they've like, oh, they've used quite a lot of programming languages or like, just like something like that and you're just that's surely not a bad thing i actually forgot about covid since we started talking about COVID. so how is that impacted us obviously it's a lot of teaching time and i know from speaking to you kind of on and off the last couple of weeks it's it's like a hell of a lot of like zoom calls for you right yeah so yeah i think when we it was i think we had like one day i remember being in glasgow on the monday teaching because i taught across glasgow and edinburgh um, and then I went home and our CEO had emailed because I think someone had done a, one of the politicians had made an announcement on the Tuesday or something. And it was like, OK, we're going remote tomorrow. I was like, and we'd been sort of looking at it and preparing, but it wasn't like it was overnight, you know. So we we tried so many different things. We had a big spreadsheet of all the things that would happen. But for our goal, it was how do we move, recreate what we're doing in class? online that's what we wanted to do um we thought about pre-recording videos but it's just not what co-clan's about like it's really not we're not online learning uh, we are doing remote teaching but it's not online learning so well, it just yeah, gives we, them an out right like if you do yeah. recorded videos like people will be like well i've had a busy day or it's a nice sunny day so i'll listen to that recording later like it almost yeah. kind of devalues it a little bit 
Yeah, exactly. And also, like, the people that are signing up for CoCon don't want that. Like, they've tried mm. online courses, and that hasn't worked for them. And I did feel terrible for them because they signed up for CoCon because they wanted a classroom environment. Um, but what we did was we just said, right, we'll just do live coding. Because that's the way CoCon works. We don't use slides. We don't use notes. We give out notes after. We're not that heartless, but we do live coding. <laughs> so we'll plug our laptop into a projector, and the students code along with us. Um, and there's an instructor at the front doing the lesson, and then there's TAs that help debug issues. So we were like, okay, we'll try it. So we just do it on Zoom. We do nine till, well, six usually now because it takes longer, where I or the other team that I work with share our screen and we just code and they follow along. And then we go into breakout rooms to debug and stuff. And it's actually worked surprisingly well. Um, It's tiring and it's a lot of screen time. I have square eyes, definitely. I've been doing this since March now. But um, yeah, your coding is the best it's ever been as well. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if anything's changed. People keep saying, what's the difference in how you're doing it? And I think it's just much more exhausting. Like, it's hard to be on camera, night, like, eight hours a day. Um, but, yeah, I think the feedback from the students for when we went remote was, was like, yeah, you're doing really well. And we're recording them. We're putting them on YouTube as well. So they have access to them after. Because people have kids and stuff. And it can just be impossible for it. There was actually a student, and I don't know how he does it, like, he was sitting describing his homework and he had one child screaming in this year and another one screaming in this year. <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, so I found the homework quite tough. And and then at the end, he just like tousled their hair. And I was like, how is he doing this? And his wife was doing the software course at the same time. So like, they were both doing that at home with kids. So yeah, Fair that's news. why we, <laughs> we started recording them. So that's kind of how it's working now. We're just doing the same thing, except we're doing it virtually. Do you think it almost gives people like a slightly different skill set though so there's like a whole um there's this whole push for like the office is dead or we remote working forever which i don't buy into at all but it's quite good for your students as well that like they're essentially doing like paired programming with a senior data scientist slash programmer whoever they're working with in a kind of remote environment so if they do end up working for a company whose headquarters is in london or america or whatever and they're jumping onto a machine with another developer like it's mimicking that a lot better than for example when you're at uni or whatever that you're just sitting in a lecture hall like it is slightly it's potentially slightly more realistic to kind of real world programming in some cases yeah, exactly. That's why CoClan has always been different than uni, I think. Like, having taught both of them, CoClan to me was all about training you to get a job, you know, and uni was about teaching you things. And they're both valuable. They're both good. They both suit different people. But CoClan, like, we have a whole careers week built into the course, you know, and that's the idea. And now, yeah, I was telling them that. They did a group project where they had to build a dashboard, like, in R for CoClan as a client. And they had to work in groups of four, and they only have four days. And they've done that. They do it over Zoom. And I was blown away by how good they were, considering that they'd done them all on Zoom. And it was only their sixth week of the course. Like, That's amazing. I know. And I just said to them, I was like, you have to put this as a skill because this is like something that will be important. There's not huge volumes of people that can say, yeah, we built an app in four days together. Like, we'd never worked together like remotely, before. remotely, yeah. yeah. Over Zoom, you know. <laughs> do you think, and it's probably not as relevant for CoClan, but like, do you think that there's still opportunities for people to get into data i know that you do the um friday talks as well um but like for people to get into data but not be a data analyst or a data scientist i know you like you said there's a project manager on the course who just wants to learn how his team works like stuff like that do you think there's still like a there's like almost like a missing link i think between 
people understand them, they can work in data, but be like a business analyst or mm-hmm. uh, I don't really know. I can't think of any other titles off the top of my head, but like something like that. And maybe Coclan would be a good avenue for them as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I do a industry insights thing as, as part of Careers Week, and it ha- all of it is just like here are four hundred job titles that come up when you search on LinkedIn, and you know, I, I think that's the good thing about data I, I, versus software. I mean, I say that having done no software development, but for me, data allows me to pick the parts of the job that I like and work in fields that I like. You know, so I am really interested in like the outdoors and active travel and all this stuff. So I, when in my personal time, do projects that are related to that kind of thing, you know, and that's more just, I mean, I'm doing like an internship right now where I'm just helping them look at their website to see how to display their data better. Like that's got no programming, but I'm happy to do that. You know, so I always say that to him is like, pick the part you like, like you will hate parts of this course, <laughs> but you will love certain parts of it. And that's okay. Like the, I think in data, there's a niche for everyone. And that's why yeah. it's so big, you know, yeah, it's even like the project you just said before people did it remotely. Like, I bet in most cases, one of those four people just like organized everyone, took the lead, like gave everyone a task. There was probably one of them who was like the ultimate doer who just like gave the best code, the best explanations, like the best visualization out of everyone. And then like someone else, someone else did something else. Like, it, that's kind of how like projects work. Even at uni, there's always that person that does like, the organization leadership then there's one person that does like a ton of the work and then another couple of people have like specific bits to do that's quite good for them to experience as well because like if you're just doing it on your own you kind of do everything so it's maybe harder to work out which bit you actually like yeah exactly and they do they all take those roles on like it happens every time like we we call it uh, what do we call it we call it branch gate as well because they have to do get they have to do it on github uh, and they have to use branches and all this stuff so we always have branch gate because people are like sending code on slack because one of them doesn't know how to do it and one of them like knows how to do it one person merges it all in the end i'm like it's not the point but it's fine you've found your niche you know so (laughs) Yeah, it, yeah, it's good. It gives. I think the fourteen weeks every day is something different, and it's a new topic, so it gives people a real chance to actually find out. Yeah, I like visualization, or I like stats, or I actually like programming. I'm going to go into like database engineering instead, you know. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's brilliant. Um, and I suppose, what's the plans, roughly speaking, given that nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow? What's the plans, kind of, for CodeClan? Uh, I suppose more specifically, your kind of data side to it kind of for the rest of the year and even now uh, when we're going into year two year three year four of the data um, analysis course is there plans to to branch out at all or is it just to kind of consolidate and, and keep going with what you're doing um yeah so yeah as you say nobody knows what's going to happen it's actually been a really hard part of all this you know because our cohorts come every 14 weeks we're not working on the same time skills at uni where we're like yeah in a year we'll reevaluate. Um, we decided for this cohort that's just started that we would do it totally remotely. That for for me, that was just a no brainer. I was like, even if it is still October, that gives people certainty, right? It's like we're not going to change it. Who's going to hand over money if they're not sure? You know, yeah. and it's been really cool because we've got people from all over Scotland in the course, and I, I kind of love that it's more inclusive now. But um, I think we're sort of tentatively planning that the next one that will start sometime in October is going to be in the classroom in Edinburgh. How that will look, nobody knows. I can't make that judgment call. That's for like health professionals. Um, but I've, I, we're actually going to put up an option to see if people are interested in another remote one, and we'll just run it at the same time. Because for me, I think there is demand. Like I think a remote one is good. I think it includes more people. I think it 
gives more people the opportunity. So I don't I don't want to stop doing remote ones. I, I think that's mm. I don't want to say a silver lining of a pandemic because that's an awful thing to say. <laughs> but like do you know what I mean? Like I think it's allowed Cold Clan to be more inclusive because before you had to live in the central bell and you had to be able to not work and you had to, you know, not have kids usually because you were there so long during the day and you you know, it was just yeah, it was yeah, that was that was the two examples I thought of when you said that. Like, if you were a like a network engineer doing like on-site stuff up in forests in like the north of Scotland, but you really wanted to do co climb, like it's it's nigh on impossible. Or if you were a single mum with like two young kids who weren't yet in full-time yeah. uh, childcare or something like that, like it, and it's not just co climb that does this. It's, it's just like most of these things are quite prohibitive. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, yeah, if you could do something remote, then. That it would potentially open the doors for quite yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of thing I love about it. So we're going to do those two big ones. And then we've got the short courses. I was so excited to do them. It's like these little two, three day courses. Um, we're going to do R for data analysis, SQL for data analysis, and Python for data. Well, we've already done the Python one. We've got another one scheduled. And then we're going to do like a visualization one and a stats one, <laughs> which is going to be, well, I always thought stats would be a really difficult sell, but uh, I work with a, a team of truly amazing instructors. And one of them is the guy called Dale, and he's the only person apparently that's managed to fill a voluntary maths class on a Friday night in CodeClan. So, <laughs> you know, he wants to do a stats one, so we'll, we'll do that. And, uh, yeah, I think it's quite exciting and that we can do anything there, I suppose. Yeah, that's cool. Is there any plans, and this is just off the top of my head, because people keep talking about it on Twitter, is there any plans to introduce, like, Julia into some of the languages, or is that not? I mean, maybe? I mean, we could get this. So this is the thing I really like about CoClan as well versus the uni. Like, if we want to change stuff, we just change it. If we want to do stuff, we just do it. I don't have to submit forms to anyone to change the curriculum. You know, I think... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like after the first ones, people said, oh, we kind of want to do like some spatial analysis. And I had done time series and spatial stuff because it's brain, like the brains are just time and space. So we added like a spatial bit into it and we, people wanted more Python um, because that's something I hear a lot about the course is like, why do you teach it in R and not Python? I was like, why know both of them? And R is like, for a beginner, it's easier to understand than Python. And if you get the logic of a programming language, it's, it's not hard to learn another one, you know, so... Yeah, but we added a week of Python into the course um, instead of, I think we did like two days before, but we did a week and they can do their projects in Python if they want. So, yeah, I mean, if people, I'm a big believer in like, I mean, everyone's seen my LinkedIn surveys, right? Like, <laughs> I think making a decision when you don't have data to back it up is a bit strange. So I do surveys and if people want something, I'll do it. You know, that's the great thing. Like if people tell me, run this course, I'll be like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> No, I like that. I like that. And I suppose that's the whole point. If people are paying their money and they're trying to get something out of it, like if they want to do it, then they should just ask. Um, So last, pretty much last point. How, so two questions. How can people get involved in the Code Climb courses? Like, is it a pretty simple sign-up process? Is it something they have to do? Uh, Yeah, so I think the first thing I would say is come to an open, well, we just call them open nights. We don't do them. We do them on Zoom now. And then we, you hear all about the course and it's the instructors that do them. So you can ask your questions. We also do like taster sessions now. So it's, you can come and it's, we give you a three hour free lesson to see if you like it. So those two things first, because I think that gives you an idea. And then you apply and you get to talk to the applications um, manager. And the idea is that, so for CodeClan, there's no prerequisites, right? You don't need a degree. We're not interested 
if you have a degree if you do it doesn't matter what they're looking for is do you actually want to do this like can you commit the time can you commit your life away from your friends and family you know and if you're keen like that gets you through the first one because I actually think there's this idea that co-plan admits everyone that applies but like no that's not our business model if we don't think you'll benefit from it we won't let you pay the money. You know, Coquan's a social enterprise. It's not a business. And I didn't actually realize that until I went there. <laughs> like, we, like, we, there are students that start the course and we say, you, this is not for you. Like, you're wasting your money. We won't, we, we, we will give your money back. You know, we don't want to take people's money. So that's the key thing is like, do they want to do it? And then they do a wee task is you'll get a, I think we send like a data set and you have to do some insights in it. You don't actually have to do any programming because that's not the point of data, right? Like I can teach you to program, but I can't teach you to think about data. So you have to like do some, I think it's like a little five, 10 minute presentation to one of the admissions team about this data and what you found. And then if she's like, yeah, okay, I think they're doing it for the right reasons. They're keen, they're willing to do it and they can do it. Then you get an offer, you know? So No, that's cool. And bonus, bonus question before I finish. Do you think you can teach anybody to code? Um, so, yeah. So I've had this discussion as well before in CodeClan because I think as a teacher, you you want to say, yeah, anyone can learn anything. And I do think that is true. What I'm not sure is true is that if everyone can learn in a bootcamp format. And I say that because I don't think I could keep up. <laughs> like, I am a really slow learner. Um, and the pace of CodeClan is not for everyone. Like, some people love it. That is what they need to do. They need that high intensity. But yeah, I think, yes, given enough time, I could teach anyone to code. Like I have had a lot of, I don't everyone's probably the same. If you work in tech, like your parents have been asking you to help them with stuff now, right? Like I had- like I was, turning the router on and off. Yeah. <laughs> I That's was like, I, <laughs> I know my dad, uh, he's, he's like a solicitor. So he was doing Zoom calls with like prisons and stuff. But then honestly, one Sunday night, I found myself in a Zoom call with like, two of his lawyer friends and him and I was unzipping files for them like remotely you know um and showing them how to do it so same with my mum like she's yeah she was doing stuff over zoom so yeah I think I could given that experience but I don't know if I would want to given that experience (laughs) but yeah I think anyone can do anything given the opportunity that's that's the key thing not everyone has the opportunity but if they had I think anyone could do it yeah nice um and I just finish off where do people find anything that you post online and where's the best place to follow uh CodeClan as well uh so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn I don't have a Facebook and I don't really have anything like that but I think Twitter it's just underscore Stephanie Boyle that may be wrong um but I think it is and same with LinkedIn you just google me and then CodeClan has everything they have the Instagram is that Instagram? yeah they have Instagram because we did an Insta stories takeover one day when we were still in class that was fun um and then yeah if you just google code clan i think like they post a lot on twitter yeah i just checked it now it's um at code clan scott on uh, on twitter and also linkedin's very easy to find just yeah all right cool well thank you very much for coming on when we post everything we'll get code clan tagged up and everything and people can follow along and see what you and the team are up to by then and it'll be it'll be cool to see how well maybe the october changes happen uh, and anything else that comes as well yeah, I also agree. We're cool to see what happens. We don't know, but yeah, it's good. No, cool. Thanks for having me. It was good. Uh, that was a fun one. Um, Steph was super easy to talk to, as I thought she would be. Um, so she is doing uh, some pretty amazing work with CodeClan um, and the wider team are obviously doing some pretty cool things in software development as well. And for for my money, these courses are 
kind of more impressive to me than, than pretty much any other avenue into industry. Uh, the time and commitment to do it, um, especially pivoting from another career, for example, uh, is really something else. Uh, so please do check them out and see what they're up to on social media. Um, and if you're interested in the courses, then I'm sure uh, Steph would have a chat with you. And thanks again to Cathcart for sponsoring. Um, we really can't do this without their support. Uh, thank you to you for tuning in. And we'll be back soon.